Hey y'all, Torella here. So you probably know this about me already, but obviously I'm a huge true crime fan, just like you. And since we're basically the same person, I bet you've been wondering the same thing I've been wondering for some time now, which is how can I use my love for true crime for good? Well, I figured it out. September 25th is National Day of Remembrance for Murder Victims. And according to the nonprofit Parents of Missing Children, over 14,000 people are murdered each year in the U.S., which is a murder about every 37 minutes. The impact of this loss is significant, creating waves and ripple effects for years to come in the lives of those that are left behind. In honor of September 25th, I've designed a simple t-shirt that says, We Remember. As fans of true crime, we can stand together and honor the people who have died by violence, as well as promote public awareness of the impact these crimes have on the world. 100% of the proceeds will be donated to parents of missing children to further their mission of supporting survivors of homicide victims and working to create a murder-free world. To get your shirt, visit bit.ly slash we remember 2019 that's bit b-i-t dot l-y slash we remember 2019 and please take a moment on september 25th to remember those that we've lost welcome back yes to Killer Queens. And if it's your first time, welcome. Welcome. If it is your first time, let us give you a tour. Um, right over here mm. is where you're going to find F-bombs. Sure. Right over there, you're going to find 90s references. Heavy on the friends. Heavy on the friends. Today, you're going to hear some Letterkenny. Not 90s, but Not still 90s, just good fun. But we do like it. Good, clean fun. And... Um, Really, the whole environment that you're going to find yourself in, side of... Oh. Too far? A little. But it's okay. I'm fine. Is a light, shall we say, we're just hanging out. We're shooting the shit. We're friends. Imagine you are having your drink of choice. For me, that's an unsweet tea with Splenda and lemon. I don't drink much, but a lot of people say it's like having a glass of wine and talking about a case with your besties. We're not going to be super technical. Mm -mm. We're not going to be super smart. No, <laughs> we couldn't even think of a better word than smart. <laughs> <laughs> so I just... How you say smart? Just, you know, putting that out there because I think that sometimes... I think that if you're looking for a podcast and you haven't listened to it before, if you go in thinking that you're going to find one thing and that's not what it is, even if you might like it, if you are trying to judge it against a crime junkie or like a forensic files or whatever, where it's just very like sword and scale. Yeah, that's not what this is. So mm -mm. we just want to be open and honest with everybody. If that's not your cup of tea, totally get it. If you want to come along for the ride and, um, you know, talk some true crime, get jiggy with it, let's do it. <laughs> do you want to go ahead and get jiggy with it? I'm ready. Okay, let's do it. Today we're going to cover, well, I guess actually today and next week, we're going to cover the death of Cooper Harris and the trial of his father, Justin Ross Harris. So 
the overall gist of the case is that in 2014, Cooper Harris was strapped into his car seat. His dad was supposed to have dropped him off at daycare. He says he forgot, and Cooper ended up passing away from being in a hot car for over seven hours. So this is going to explore exactly what happened, really focusing a lot on the trial because we have a lot of, this trial was covered extensively, and the Law and Crime Network has an entire playlist on YouTube that has a lot of the trial testimonies, so we have a lot of stuff to pull from there. Um, and just to let you guys know before I dive into it, I listened to, I actually heard about this case, well, I remember this case in the media, like when it happened, I remember it, but I didn't really look into it a lot at that point, but I started listening to a podcast called Sworn, and they covered this case on that podcast, and then in that podcast, I heard about another one called Breakdown by Atlanta, I think Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They just have AJC written everywhere, but it's a newspaper or something there. Okay. What do you call What's that? What's a newspaper? A periodical? <laughs> <laughs> what what do we technically call that? I don't think it's a magazine. What is black and white and red all over? Oh, <laughs> it's a newspaper. <laughs> um, so anyway, they... They have a podcast, and this was in their se- their season two was all about this case. So each season, I think, covers a different case, and it's really, really good. They covered it in real time, so I'm hashtag blessed that I found it after the trial concluded because I would have been fucking pissed <laughs> that, well, you know how it is. It's like you get into listening to something, and you want to binge it, and then since they were covering it in real time, they had to go like months in between episodes sometimes because there was like a change of venue and like stuff with the trial. So there was like all this time in between that would have been like excruciating if I was trying to binge it. So hashtag blessed got to listen to it all at once. But if you want to do a super deep dive into this case, there's like 13 or 14 episodes. I think listen to that. It's so good. So, um, and the guy who, hosted Bill Rankin I think is his name he's the the journalist that covered it but I don't know he's he says he's their legal affairs analyst or something like that so I don't know if he is a lawyer or whatever but they would often break down things that would happen and they would have kind of like a separate segment and they call it lesson in the law um and he's pretty funny he's like kind of a cheeky writer he was he it was fun to listen to all of the best ones names are Bill it's so true. And, um, but he would break down stuff and really help you kind of understand. I feel like why. you're using the term breakdown a lot. And it's like when you oh watch a movie God. and they say the title of the movie in the movie. I know. You know, that's really funny. It's, I'm seeing how fucking genius it was that they named it Breakdown. And then also, um, after the verdict, one of the attorneys, prosecution or defense side I won't give it away if you don't know about it (laughs) but one of them said basically you know every time whichever side loses says it was a miscarriage of justice or whatever but one of the the guy was like there was a serious breakdown in the justice system and he must have said breakdown like seven times and 
Bill Rankin kind of like broke in and was like, okay, I really appreciate kind of like the nod to using the term breakdown. He's like, I promise I didn't pay him to do that. Like I had <laughs> nothing to do with it. It's just what he said. But he said breakdown a lot too. So that's, that's really funny. Awesome. I'm seeing the the genius at work here. Mm-hmm. He got me. <laughs> All right. So now that you kind of have the gist of everything, you can see where you can get a deeper dive. Let's get jiggy with it. Okay. Okay. Oh, you know what? I do. I do need to say because this is about a child. I think a lot of there are some people who might feel triggered. So just know that going into it. If you can't handle a child's death, and this was a pretty horrific death, um, you know, just know that. So that's where we're going. It's going to be this episode, and then we'll have a part two. So just so you guys know. Just do what do what's best for you. And Yeah, if you can't do it, we totally get it. This has been a really, really tough case to research. Like, it's interesting as far as the law side of it goes, but it's it's gut-wrenching. Like... I talked to my husband about it a little bit this week, and he literally last night went upstairs after our kids were in bed and just went upstairs and held them, like, and cried. He, he it, It's broken him just to hear a little bit about it. I don't talk to him a ton about these because he has a hard time, but, you know, if you're one of those people, this is not your episode. Mm-hmm. So now let's get you with it. Yeah. Okay. On June 18th, 2014, Justin Ross Harris says that he woke up early. Of course, he says it was like any other day. From his statements and statements from his wife at the time, Leanna, their 22-month-old son, Cooper, woke up early. He laid in bed with Ross. After he got up, they watched cartoons together for a while. And Leanna left for work as a dietitian around 7.15 that morning. Ross says Cooper fell back asleep for a few minutes Then they left their house to go to breakfast at Chick-fil-A and then to go to daycare. Ross and Cooper left Chick-fil-A at about 9.19 a.m. And surveillance video at the restaurant shows Cooper to be awake and happy. Ross says he buckles Cooper into his car seat, gives him a kiss like he always did, and then they leave for daycare. But in the two minutes or less that it took him to get to the intersection where Ross would need to either make a left turn to get to Little Apron Academy where Cooper was enrolled... He continued straight through the traffic light and pulled into his workplace parking lot. He backed into his parking spot. He sits in his car for about 30 seconds, gathering his things, and then he exits the car. He goes into work and begins his work day. He then goes to lunch at Publix with some colleagues. They stop at Home Depot so that Ross can buy some light bulbs. They return to the parking lot around 12.40 p.m., and Ross can be seen on surveillance video putting the bag with the light bulbs in his car. He then goes back to his office building. He texts his wife, Leanna, about 3.16 p.m., asking, when are you going to get my buddy? He leaves work at about 4.16 p.m. to meet his friends for an early evening movie. I think they said they were going to see, like, a 5 o'clock show. He drives a little over a mile and pulls into a shopping center parking lot. He jumps out of his Hyundai Tucson, leaving the driver door open. Witnesses recall him pulling Cooper out of the car frantically as he's now realized his grave mistake. The biggest mistake of his life. The biggest mistake anyone can make. His son has been in his hot car for over seven hours. Ross attempts CPR and is said to be frantically screaming, what have I done, repeatedly. A bystander steps in to give Cooper CPR as Ross wasn't making any progress. And the what he said was that Ross was kind of like fumbling around. Like, not even necessarily that he didn't know what he was doing, but... 
the guy said he kept telling him to focus. It was like he couldn't focus. And then he was like, just move out of the way. Let me do it for you. Because he just... He's probably just beside himself. Like, yeah. 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 Well, and even... Um, even people who know CPR, which this reminds me that I feel like I need to take another class on it because it's been a long time since I've done it. But um, sometimes, like, I know there's some cases where they're like, this was a medical professional. They know how to do CPR. Like, Ross isn't a medical professional, but there's other cases where I've seen that happen. And when I was working for, uh, in one of the offices I worked in, the doctor, his daughter had fallen at daycare and she cut her mouth open pretty bad. She needed stitches. And she was only like a year and a half old. And so his wife, who was also a doctor, brought her to the office so the doctor I worked for could sew her lip up. And his wife, who, again, is medical professional. She's a doctor. She worked in the ER. She sees all kinds of shit. She was falling apart. And I had to hold their little girl down because this little girl is awake. You know, she's a year and a half old and her dad's sticking a needle in her face to sew her up. She's flipping the fuck out, understandably so. But his wife couldn't hold her down and she went outside and she threw up. Oh I mean, it, it affected her in such a way that she couldn't, she couldn't keep her composure. So, and she knew how to do this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. she's a doctor. She worked in an ER. She'd seen a lot of high stress situations, but sometimes you just kind of lose it and you can't, she said after she like was able to calm down everything after it was over and her daughter had calmed down and she was all sewn up, you know, all that kind of stuff. She was just like, you know, obviously I can handle this kind of stuff, but when it's one of my kids, it's different. Mm -hmm. Like she's just like it, I couldn't do it. So I think, Like, I can understand how, even if Ross did know CPR, which maybe he did, maybe he didn't, I don't know, but that he would maybe just not be able to even really do it. Mm -hmm. The witness uh, who ended up giving Cooper CPR said that his color was off and he had marks on his body where he appeared to have clawed or scratched at himself and he was still in a sitting position. First responders arrived on the scene and pronounced Cooper Harris dead. Ross was behaving so frantically that police had to detain him to calm him down. He was taken to the police station for questioning from there. During this time, Leanna has arrived at Little Apron Academy to pick up her son. She had no idea her son had been in her husband's car all day and he has since passed away. She walked to Cooper's classroom and she didn't find him there and She said that teachers were really confused as to why she was there. And they're like, what are you doing here? And she's like, I'm here to pick up my son. (laughs) Like, I'm here to get Cooper. And they tell her that he hadn't been dropped off that day. And he'd never been checked in. He's not there. And her response was, Ross must have left him in the car. And she started frantically calling Ross, but she was unable to reach him. We know that this is because at this point he's in police custody. She doesn't know this at the time. So she's trying to gather information, figure out what's going on. And she's in the daycare and the, I guess in the office area, maybe they had a TV on that had the news on and two of the people that worked there were talking to each other. And she said that when she walked into the room, they hurried up and turned the TV off and she was like, what's wrong? Like, something's wrong. I don't know what's happening, but I know something's really bad. 
and I feel like you know what it is. And by that point, she had received a call from a detective who told her just to stay there, that they were going to come to her, but he wouldn't tell her what happened either. Like, I just feel like that, I mean, I understand that's protocol, but that's so hateful. Like, like Britney Spears says, like, don't let me be the last to know. You know what I mean? Like, that's just, it's just too, yeah. yeah. Like all joking aside, I mean, that's just awful to be, for everyone to know what's going on. And this is about your child. Exactly. Your child. Yeah. Where is he? Why is he not here? Why can I not pick him up? And why won't anybody tell me what's happening? Like, I cannot imagine what she was going through. And so she, you know, she's asking the staff, I feel like you know what's going on, what was on the TV. And they're like, I don't know if we should be the people to tell you. And she's like, what does it matter if you tell me? At least I know you guys. Or if a cop that I've never met before tells me what's going on, but I need to know what's going on. So they were like, look, there was a report on the news. They said a little boy died from being in a car all day. And I, we saw Ross's car on the news. And she's like, oh, fuck. Like, just hysterical, I'm sure. Well, so here's the thing. I think inside she was hysterical. I think she was in shock. shock yeah. Yeah. So she's she's just like, wh- like can't even process it. But the police are going to go on to find that very suspicious. So, um, but... What she's saying is, like, her worst fear had come true. It is interesting that her first reaction when she heard that he had not been dropped off was, oh, Ross must have left him in the car. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, that's not going to be the only interesting comment or statement that she makes. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Once they get her to the police station, where they've already been questioning Ross... She's allowed to see him, and then they're left alone together in in the interrogation room. And at that point, they don't know that they're being recorded, but they are. And Ross gets really emotional when he sees her. He's apologizing. He's crying. He's asking her if she's okay. He's like, I just feel like you're not going to be okay. Like, are you okay? And and she just keeps saying, like, I love you. I love you. We're going to get through this. And he's like... I didn't mean to do this. It was an accident. Of course, I didn't mean to do it. And she's like, I know you didn't. I know you didn't. Like, I know you would never do that. I know you didn't do it on purpose. And she's just really trying to console him at this point. She's very, it was, it was a little bit uncomfortable to watch. I watched the interview or I guess not an interview. I just watched the video of it. Not the whole thing. It's like two hours long, but I watched a lot of it and they're facing each other. He's sitting in a chair. She's kind of like her chair is almost like butted up against his and he's a dude so he's sitting with his legs open and she's kind of like wrapping around him a little bit almost like you know hugging him embracing him some and then she'll kind of lay her head down which is like ends up being in his lap it it was I don't know I mean I don't I don't know how I would react I'm sure you at that point, I think what they both needed was each other. Like, mm-hmm. they needed to lean on each other for support. But the, I don't know, the body, like, language and the touching was, I don't know, a little bit uncomfortable for me to watch. But like, in a sexual way or it, something? I mean, it wasn't, but it was like her face was in his crotch a lot. You know, just her laying her head down. But, yeah, you know, it was just a little, like, 
I was just like, oh, I feel like I shouldn't be watching this a little right, bit. Right. Like they certainly were not doing anything sexual. It was just, that's just how they were sitting. But he keeps saying, you know, it was an accident and all this stuff. And then he tells her like, they're going to charge me. I think, I think I'm going to be arrested and they're charging me for this. And she's like, what do you mean they're charging you? Charging you for what? And he's like, they're charging me for murder. I think like, I don't know. He, he just keeps saying he doesn't know. And they both don't understand why he's being charged because in their mind, it was a complete accident. It was not intentional in any way, shape or form. So they're not understanding where the charge is coming from. But she says, did you say too much? What would he have said that was too much? Right. So that seems a little strange. Like, why would you say something like that? Did you say too much? Because without any other context, even with some context, I think you could deduce that she knew something or that they knew something and did he give too much information about the something that they knew about? Absolutely. It does not sound good Mm-mm. at all. So you've got that coupled with her stoic response. I mean, here she's still, she's not cried yet that we know of. Like when we're hearing recordings of her voice, when we're seeing her on video, she's very calm and she's very collected again. That's also a side effect, I guess you could say, of shock. Right. It's like fight or flight mode. And I feel like she's gone into the fight mode where she's got to just pull herself up, put on her big girl panties and just like deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. So so we've got that. And then at about 10 o'clock that night, Ross is officially charged with murder. He's formally arrested. He's booked. He's in jail. On June the 28th, Cooper's funeral is held, and Ross is not allowed to attend it, but he's allowed to listen in by phone. That's awful. I know. I I know. It's hard because it's like, if you think he murdered him intentionally, then you're like, well, fuck that guy. He shouldn't go. But right. But if it was a legit accident and him not be able to have that closure of going to the funeral and seeing yeah. it, saying his last goodbyes. Exactly. It's kind of, it's sad. Um, and it's, I think that is hard for Leanna too, because then she's there by herself. Like anytime I'm going through something really, really difficult, especially if it has to do like with the kids, right? Yeah. You, you want your husband there. Like you want your spouse there. You want to have that person that makes you feel safe and secure and helps you kind of get through stuff. So I feel bad for her too, that she kind of had to do that by herself. But, um, the, at the funeral, uh, Ross listened in by phone. He did get to, I, I don't know if they put him on speaker or whatever, but he thanked the community for supporting him because at that point now it's public that he's been charged with murder, that the police think he intentionally killed Cooper. And so the community at that point was really rallying around him and Leanna and they didn't think that it was intentional and, and things like that. So he thanked them for their um, support, support and he mm-hmm. said some words about Cooper and, um, from all reports, he was very emotional. Leanna spoke at the funeral and she was also really, you know, thankful to the community and everything. And she said that Cooper was, or is in the most wonderful, peaceful place that there is. And again, she didn't cry. They didn't see her cry. And the, the statements that she had made 
leading up to that. And then here at the funeral and her lack of emotion that what they termed it was heavily scrutinized by police and the public. They questioned her demeanor. Why are there no tears? Why does she say things like, I wouldn't bring back Cooper if I could, saying that it was selfish of her to take him from heaven. That that was her that was her thing. Like she was saying, I wish this had never happened, but now that it has He's in a better place. He's now. in a better place. That was where she was going with it. But because of I guess the Maybe way she poor worded choice it of words, or yeah. yeah. That people were like, Well, did you have something to do with it? Did you want him to die? Um, was is it my first guess or my line of thinking when I hear about the way that she was acting and maybe even the things that she was saying was, was she medicated at this point? Like, you know, I wondered about that too, because it's possible. Yeah. She doesn't ever say anything about that. And nobody, any of the interviews I've heard with her haven't specifically asked her that question, but I think that's entirely possible. They could have given her like Valium or Xanax or something like yeah, just to like, help her cope with it and then that would in turn probably make her say some things that she maybe wouldn't have said or just been kind of like I guess it could have come across yeah out of it callous whatever yeah yeah well and also like the when they the defense attorney and she ended up getting an attorney through this whole thing too but they said she's just so strong in her faith that like like, she was just, she was saying that, like, I know that I'm going to see him again. Yeah, and, like, the best place for him to be is in heaven. Yeah, he's with Jesus. That was her, that was her belief. And whether or not that's your belief, I mean, she's doing what she needs to do, like you said, to get through it. And, and at some point, I mean, I know it's early on. I, I would cry all day, every day. I know that about myself. I'm a crier. You may not. Yeah, I might not. I don't know. I mean, I, you. I think you'd have times, and Leanna said there were times that she did completely break down. But but maybe. it hadn't. She hadn't even processed it really yet. Like she was saying that she still felt like it's so surreal. Like it wasn't really happening to them. That it wasn't really Cooper. That it wasn't really their family. That how did it? Did it really really happen? You know, like it was just. She said almost like an out-of-body experience. Sure, yeah, like a bad dream or something. I just, I I mean, I know we say it all the time. It is a slippery slope to try to say... This is what I would do. Yeah, how somebody should express their grief. How, even for me to say how I think I would react. Right. Even something is like, I, I was positive that on my wedding day, I was going to bawl the whole time down the aisle. You didn't cry really at all. I didn't. Andrew did. He did. And I thought I was going to cry the whole time. I definitely choked up when I started saying my vows, but I thought for sure this makeup is gone. <laughs> you know, like. Steven and I didn't cry at all, not one time, because we're stronger emotionally and physically than you are. Oh. Well, you want to arm wrestle? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, because I know you would kick my ass. That's not true at all. But. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, I feel like you kind of don't know exactly how you're going to react to stuff, even though you think you do. It's like you think you know, but really have no idea. Yeah. It's like the diary of Killer Queen's podcast. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. You could 
you could say it all day long. And like we talked about just now, like there maybe are other factors that play into it. Like if she had been Mm -hmm. on whatever, Mm -hmm. or if she maybe is the kind of person that grieves in private and then just really puts on a brave face for everyone else. Well, and you've also heard people say that like, so probably from, from her statements, her testimony and things that I've heard her say, what I think she probably did was she's still trying to process everything and like logistically work through it when they were in that interview room. Mm-hmm. And she did at the end of the the interview when they were getting ready to like tell her it's time for you to go home, you know, she said to the detective, is there any, does it have to be this way? Do you have, do you have to charge him right now? Like, do you have to arrest him? He did not mean to do this. Is there, is there not another way this can happen? And he's like, no, this is the way it has to be. And you can hear her voice kind of breaking up in that moment. I think, I think during that time, she is just trying to process everything. Mm -hmm. Um, They made a big deal that she didn't ask to see Cooper's body um, or that she didn't ask to see him. But again, like when we covered Jessica Chambers, um, if you, if you do go listen to that or watch the whole oxygen series, you can listen to it too. They turn it into a podcast, but, um, Jessica's mom says that her dad, Jessica's dad, Ben, did not go in the room while Jessica was in the hospital before she died. He couldn't. He couldn't. Mm-mm. And there are people that can't do that. So, again, I, I just don't think any of these kinds of things are fair one way or another. You don't know what what people can or can't handle. There are some people who will go to a funeral and they're not going to go up to the casket and pay their respects. There's some people who have closed casket funerals for that reason. Like, but the saddest thing is, and we've done it a lot, not a lot, but some of our, the podcasts that we talk about is doing this exact thing, but people judge that behavior so much, even to the point of, you know, talking about it in trial in the jury, like I'm thinking specifically Darley and it's not, maybe not necessarily specifically about this, but you know, they, one of the jurors said that the reason why she convicted her or why the reason why she decided that she should have been convicted was because of how she acted and how she carried herself. And right. It's like, is that fair? No. Or is it fair? Yeah. Because I mean, those are completely human emotion is so subjective, right? Yeah. And like, there are people who just don't show a lot of emotion. I mean, right. we've, Tori and I have gotten like super into the Enneagram lately. Oh, yeah. Like you guys, we should just sit down and have a whole conversation about that. It's so cool. But, um, when you start looking at that and then you go even deeper into things and you say, here's why, like, that's what I think is really cool about the Enneagram is that it talks about the motivation behind your actions. And so there are so many actions that people take or things that they say that I've done it in my marriage. My husband will say something and I'm like, I take it one way. And he's like, that's 1000% not the way I meant it. And I'm like, well, how, how the fuck else am I supposed to have taken that? Right. <laughs> Cause your mind works that way. Yeah. Because in my mind and my motivations and my whatever, this is what that means, yeah, right? this is the intent behind it. Exactly. And so because he has completely different core beliefs, And core we can call fears, him wrong if you want to. Yeah. 
Sure. Yeah. He's wrong. He's wrong. Yeah. But yeah, because he's got these completely different things in his makeup and in his mind and in his perspectives and all these things that that sentence or that action or whatever it is had a completely different intent behind it. And I couldn't even see that as a possibility because it's so different than how I'm wired, basically. And that's just day to day stuff. That's not a, a conviction's not hanging on that. Yeah, exactly. So it's, I don't know, it's just, it's so, it's dangerous, I think, Mm -hmm. to, I think there are some times where behavior actions, Casey Anthony. Oh, yeah. Okay, so that, though, we have a lot of evidence behind it to back it up, and the fact that her daughter is missing for 31 fucking days, and she doesn't tell anybody And during that time, while she's doing her quote-unquote own investigation, she's out partying it up. Those are actions that can be taken into account and judged, I think. I think that shows something. That's not something that's so subjective that you're like, well, everybody grieves differently. Like, your daughter is missing. Your ass better not be at a fucking bar. Right. Like, absolutely. Yeah, so... There, I think there's different situations where that kind of thing applies. Right. Police begin to view Leanna at this point as a suspect and a co-conspirator in Cooper's death. So they're not having it. In late June, a probable cause hearing is held to determine whether the case will proceed to trial. At that point, it's made public that Ross and Leanna researched hot car deaths Namely, how long it takes for a child to die in a hot car, how these deaths occur, uh, that Ross had been researching sites that advocate living, quote-unquote, child-free, and that Ross was shown on surveillance video returning to his car at lunch and looking inside the car as well as stopping when other people passed by his car and turning to see if they had seen Cooper inside. So... You have them both saying that this is a complete accident and all these things. And then the probable cause hearing happens. And then search warrants are released to the media. And you hear that the police are saying he was researching this before it happened. He was researching not necessarily how to do it or whatever, but... Like how long it takes? How long does it take? How hot does your car have to get? Um, he said Leanna was looking up the same type of information. What was the advocating living child-free websites? So the child-free, what they're saying is that he was going to, at this point, at the probable cause hearing, that he was either taking part in or, um, participating in discussions online of groups that are called child free. So what they were saying was that he wanted to live a life that was child free, that he wanted to be able to do whatever he wanted to do. Mm. And that basically having a kid was he was drive or um saddled with the responsibility of having a kid and he was tired of doing that. So yeah. he he didn't want to live that way anymore. Gotcha. The other thing that they revealed is that Justin Ross Harris was living a double life. He had been, 
he had been sexting with at least six women who were not his wife the day that Cooper died. Oh. That's just that day. Like. Oh, my. It was pretty bad. He'd been sexting all day at work. He was sending and receiving explicit photos at work. We're talking boners. Boner jam 2014. Basically. And all of this while his son is in his car. Like, he was engaging in illegal... Mm. Mm -mm. He was engaging in illegal activities like exchanging sexual messages with minors. (gasps) Yeah. And he had encounters with multiple prostitutes. So, he's married. He's got a kid. He's got a good job. Seems like everything's going good. And then he literally, like, I don't even know if they could keep count with how many women he was either having affairs with, meeting up with, talking with, having sex with. He's seeking out prostitutes. He's doing all these things. And supposedly Leanna doesn't know about any of this. So, but neither did anybody else that Ross knew. So now we've got. Not what I was expecting. Exactly. Yeah. To look at him. I think one of the, one of the witnesses that they called in the trial was one of the sex workers that he had utilized. Visited. Yeah. And he, she thinks that he used her services maybe three separate times, something like that. She described him as dumpy. Oh. (laughs) She said he obviously didn't care about his appearance. Well, that's a little harsh. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he definitely doesn't look like the kind of guy who is getting a lot of ass, I guess. Yeah, but he was pulling it that day. He's pulling it every day from what it sounded like. I just don't even get it. But, um... Like, I don't even get how you can maintain that many different conversations and okay, but in a Cooper day. Was he not the most precious? Precious little boy. So precious. Oh, my goodness. So there, that's some pretty damning stuff. I mean, so you're looking at this and you're saying, God, that's a tragic accident. Like, horrible, horrible stuff. Can't believe that happened. These, you know, these poor people, this dad has got to feel so horrible, you know, He's never going to forgive himself. Like, that's the worst mistake you can make, and it's awful. And then you hear about all this stuff, and you're like, did he mean to do it? Fuck that guy. (laughs) Like, that's, you know, it's going to definitely change your entire perspective. Yeah. So, at this time, Leanna was a dietitian. I mentioned that earlier. Ross was a web developer at Home Depot, So he worked at their corporate office, and they had a beautiful son, Cooper, 22 months old at the time. They were really active in their church. Ross was even the lead guitarist at his church. And the fact that Ross could be engaging in such immoral sexual behavior was mind-boggling to his community. Like, they were shaken. And these are people who had donated to his defense fund, like all these things. They really rallied around him. Yeah, they did. And his church... His church did still support him, Um, and Home Depot actually, I think, paid for Cooper's funeral, so... That was really sweet. Yeah, so they, I mean, they did receive a lot of support, Um, and they just couldn't, they're just like, can't reconcile that, because 
most of them believed that this was a happy family. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, people make mistakes. Shit happens. You know, you do things that you wouldn't normally, you know, you, you sometimes you have a view of what your life is going to be like or the kind of person that you are, and then you fuck up and you do things. But that's kind of a lot of fucking up over a lot, a long period of time. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I can't. Who it's, am I to judge? But. It's a lot. I mean, it's definitely a lot. So even after these people who probably felt a little like, whoa, okay. Jarred. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been supporting you. I didn't know this about you. I kind of feel deceived probably. Um, they just, they still didn't think that he killed Cooper on purpose though. There's no disputing that he killed Cooper. His actions led to Cooper's death. Right. But whether he did it on purpose, they still didn't believe that. So regardless of all the other mistakes he'd made, they felt like he still hadn't done this on purpose. Nevertheless, he was charged with three counts of murder, including one count of intentional or malice murder, two counts of cruelty to children, and three counts of sending sexual material to a minor. And after a long process of jury selection, a change of venue, and some other challenges of getting this case to trial, opening statements began on October 3rd, 2016, more than two years after Cooper's death. The prosecution focused on what has been deemed the Red Whisper. Oh, yeah. Sounds like really ominous. It really does. So there's a site called Whisper. Are you familiar with this? I've heard it, heard of it. I'm not sure if I know exactly what it is. Isn't it like an anonymous type of... I think so, yeah. So it's, from what I understand from this case, it's some kind of a message board, maybe you would call it, where like people can go on and post stuff anonymously, and then you can, after that, this is what he would do with a lot of people. He would meet people on Whisper, message back and forth, and then they would move to an app called Kick which is the messaging app. Okay. And he had that app kind of like hidden somewhere in his phone, I guess. Um, but that's where he would send a lot of his messages to and from women asking for or receiving or sending photos, things, photos, like that. all that kind of stuff, setting up liaisons, all these sort of things. So a post that he commented on that morning is what, the prosecution, I don't know if they, they're calling it the Red Whisper, but that's what people who follow the case call it. But what they did was they took that message and they put it on this big red poster board and they have it like sitting up behind them and they reference it a lot during the case. So the woman who posted that morning, and this is the day, June 18th, the day that Cooper died, a woman posted... I hate being married with kids. The novelty is worn off and I have nothing to show for it, which is so sad. Yeah, that is just awful. Very depressing. Um, but Ross commented on it and he said, I miss having time to myself and going out with my friends. My wife gets upset when I want to go out with friends. And then around 9.15 a.m., and we know that he left Chick-fil-A at 9.19 so he's like sitting next to Cooper at Chick-fil-A eating. He says, I love my son and all, but we both need escapes. So 
the prosecution is hammering this. This kind of becomes their main focus and their theme for the whole case that Justin Ross Harris, so he goes by Ross, so you'll hear most of the time we'll call him Ross or by his last name Harris, did not want to be married and have a child anymore. He wanted to live a quote-unquote child-free life. He wanted to remove the barrier between himself and his goal of sleeping with as many women as possible, which was an actual goal of his. Oh, Gosh. And that barrier... he learned anything from Charlie Sheen. <laughs> right. That barrier was Cooper, is what the prosecution says. In my mind, that barrier is Leanna. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's plenty of dudes who have joint custody and are not married. Like... Yeah. Unless, is it a... Would it be a... Um, child support situation where he wouldn't want to give up his money or maybe yeah but they they dive into motive enough to say that he needed to get rid of cooper so he could sleep with women that was they don't they don't go financial with it at all mm-hmm. so okay it, yeah if that is part of it they don't talk about it um according to harris's defense attorney h maddox kilgore Wow, look a cool name. Ross had been searching, in addition to his sexually explicit searches, for family homes with big yards and good school districts, and he even had a real estate agent. So they talked to the real estate agent, and she told them that they were looking to buy a new house and that Ross told her that their main concern was a good school district. Like, that's what they were looking for was good schools. So the defense is trying to point out that he had future plans that included Cooper. Like, mm-hmm. he was planning on buying a house and that the main concern of that home was where was Cooper going to go to school. So they they did not feel that... It wasn't it, like he was looking for a downtown apartment, one bedroom. Right, yeah. Yeah, it didn't look like he was trying to cut anybody out of the picture in any way. And Kilgore explained the difference between habit memory and short-term memory. And he said, Ross never forgot that he had a son. That wasn't the issue. He just lost awareness that he was in the car that day. So the defense really wanted to point out that this was a mistake, that it can happen, and that... um, there are, they ended up bringing on a witness to, who was an expert in short-term memory and all that kind of stuff, who explained those things, but they really wanted to focus on how it can happen and how it doesn't necessarily only happen because you meant to do it. So the opening statements were, obviously, I mean, that's where you're you're, the attorneys are going to kind of lay out and give the, the jury an idea of like what's to come. Here's what you're going to see. Here's what we're going to show. Here's the evidence we're going to bring to you and all these things. And the prosecution immediately comes out the gate talking about the sexual stuff. And they harp on that so much. It's literally like all they talk about is the sexual stuff. And how he was unfaithful in his marriage and how he spent all this time talking to other women and meeting up with other women and all these things. And 
in my mind when I'm listening, every time I listen to anything, the prosecution talked about like opening and closing statements, all those things. I'm like, this sounds like it's a murder trial for if he had murdered Leanna. Mm -hmm. Like, it sounds like you're showing me motive to get rid of her. It doesn't, their case really came from, from that side to me, it seemed like. So it was just a little, it it almost felt disjointed to me. Mm. So the first, uh, I mean, they had a lot of people testify. I think there was like the prosecution called like 51 witnesses maybe. So we're only going to go through 50. (laughs) Just kidding. I only have like cherry picked a few basically. But Officer Jacqueline Piper was one of the first officers on the scene. And she testified that she had been eating dinner in a restaurant about a mile away when she got the call about a non-responsive child. She testified that when she arrived on scene, she tried to assist the other officers in aiding Cooper, and once she realized it wasn't possible to revive him, she turned her attention to Ross, who she said had been calm, but started yelling in a monotone voice that seemed very forced. She actually compared him to Will Ferrell. Like when he has voice modulation disorder? Kind of. Like, yeah, she was like, he would go back and forth between like sobbing and like, why, why, why? And then just be like really calm and talk in a really monotone voice. And like, but yeah, she said when he was yelling, it was really monotone. It seemed forced. And she just kept saying that he had like Will Ferrell like behavior. It was, Mm. yeah. She said that he had also told one of her fellow officers to shut the fuck up. My son just died when the officer told him to put his phone away. And she said that because he approached the officer when he said that, they handcuffed him and they put him in the back of the squad car. She said he would not initially get all the way into the car when they asked him to. And they had to ask him to repeatedly get inside the vehicle. Officer Piper said that Harris wanted to make it clear that he'd previously been in law enforcement And he even spelled his name phonetically like Sally, Lucy, Echo, Mary, Paul, which she thought was unusual because she said most people don't do that, especially in very tense situations like that, that most people aren't going to think to slow down and do it that way. I do like how you used your own last name. Do you know why? Why? Because Andrew spells our last name like that. Always. Oh. He says, if, if we're anywhere and they say, what's your last name? He says, Slimp. Sally, Lucy, Echo, Mary, Paul. And I remember that because those are the ones he uses every single time. Wow. <laughs> so that was kind of interesting to me because I thought, how does he normally do it? Like if he had, so when he, they moved from Alabama, I think Tuscaloosa area to Georgia a few years before that. And when he lived in Tuscaloosa, he worked in dispatch for law enforcement. So did he get used to it then and then just do it all the time? I wonder if he went to a restaurant and they asked for his name, did he spell it like that? Right. Well, yeah. If it's, and if it's a, like a habit to do it. Yeah. No matter who asked or where you were, you do it. If it's Harris, like it, if there are two consonants or two, whatever letters back to back, do you use the same word for ev- for both of them, or do you mix it up? Yep, I think you use the same one. Okay. Sierra, Sierra. I dislike it. It's just it's the breaks, man. I don't think it sounds nice. Yeah, no, it doesn't. But they're also asking him to spell stuff. 
I think it would be weird if they were like, uh, what's your first name or what's your last name? And he's, he, he just, just launched into it. Yeah. Launches into spelling it and then doing that like phonetic spelling thing. Like it, but they are like, if you go back and watch the video, they're saying, what's your address? Spell it. What's your, you know, like whatever. Maybe they didn't ask him to spell his address, but they did ask him to spell some stuff. And at court, every time somebody sits down, they ask you to spell it too. So it's like a thing, I guess. Yeah. So it's but, not that out of line for him to be doing this. Yeah. What doesn't look good, what I don't appreciate is that when he finally does get his ass all the way inside of the car, he complained that it was too hot. Mm. And more than once. And he he did also say that his handcuffs were too tight on his wrist, and Officer Piper said she did loosen them a little bit because they were tight. But that he mentioned several times that the car was too hot, and she said that she told him it was as good as it was going to get because the AC was already turned on and it was working properly and she had it pointed to the back and all this stuff. And you can see that in the video. She, You don't ever hear him say it's too hot, but you hear her saying, I've got it on, it's working, I've got it blowing, like all this stuff. So that's just, it's so like de classe to say that directly after your son has been. Mm-hmm killed because he was left in a hot car yeah I mean I can see why that would raise some red flags in the sense that yeah it's like you know damn well your son just died from being in a hot car all day and whether or not you meant to do it it's your fault like you're responsible for that yeah yeah you're responsible because of the heat the intense heat that he was subjected to, he suffered excruciating pain. Well, there were scratches all over his body from him trying to claw his way out, I would think. Yeah. So sad. And you have the fucking nerve to say you're you're a little too hot. Like, I cannot. It's just fucked up. Yeah. It's fucked up. Fuck, figure it out. That's what I say. I said, figure it out. Figure it out. Fucking figure it out. Those little letty. Oh. oh. Letter Kenny? <laughs> That was a little letter, Kenny, for you. Hilarious. Fucking figure it out. Yeah, because when I was writing this part in, immediately that popped into my head, and I was like, I just got to go get it, because <laughs> it, it just goes right here. Because, I mean, fucking figure it out. <laughs> like, what the fuck? So the prosecution does show the video from Piper's patrol car, which is about 90 minutes long. Wow. Yeah, the court has to sit there and watch the whole thing. Of note in the video, according to the article on AJC.com, Harris is asking for his handcuffs to be removed because there's people he needs to call. So when she's, remember, Piper says he is looking for his phone or he's telling her he needs to make phone calls or whatever. And she said that the one officer said that he needed to put his phone down and he yelled and said, shut the fuck up, my son just died. When you watch the video, he's saying, hey, I've got to make these phone calls. I need to call. She's like, she's almost talking to him like, who the fuck do you need to call right now? Like, what else do you have going on? And he's like, well, I got to call the daycare and tell them what happened. I got to call Leanna, try to catch her. And if I can't catch her, tell the daycare because she's going to show up there looking for him and he's not there. Like, I need to let her know what's going on. And he, 
when she's asking him, what's your date of birth? What's your social security? What's your address? What's your wife's date? All these things. What's your phone number? He's stopping her a few times and saying, I really, really, really need to call my wife. I need to call my wife. I have people I need to call and let them know what's going on. And she's like, yeah, I get that. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. So at the point that he yells at that police officer, now, unless this video has been edited, this police officer who he turns around and says, shut the fuck up. My son just died. The police officer is almost like in um, Arrested Development where they just come out of nowhere and start beating him with the baton every time. Yeah, this police officer is just like, you, shut the fuck up. What are you doing? You don't fucking, like, watch your fucking mouth and all this stuff. They're just, like, kind of really coming at it. And it seemed like Piper was just talking to him. Now, he was not obeying her commands necessarily. She was telling him, to get in the car and she was trying to handcuff him and all this kind of stuff. And she kept telling him to give his phone to her. And he's saying, I need to make phone calls. She, she says in her testimony that he won't give her his phone, that he refuses. But when you watch the video, when all of this is happening and he's like, I need to call people. You shut the fuck up. My son just died. And he says several times, I'm just really upset right now. Like I used to work in law enforcement Almost as if, like, I understand what you're trying to do. You've got to do your job. I used to work in this, but I need to make these phone calls. I need to let my wife know what's going on. And she says, give me your phone. And he says, I'll try to find it. He's still looking for his phone at this point. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why he's not getting in the car. I don't know that he's like, I've got to go find my phone or whatever. But she's making it seem like he's holding it from her. And that he's holding his phone. Yeah. And then he won't give it. And you can hear him say he's trying to find it. And then... She says at one point she, after they've got him in the car, that she goes to get out of the car and then she comes back in and she's looking around the front seat and he asks her what she's looking for and she says she's looking for her phone and he says, or maybe she doesn't say that, he he asks her what she's looking for and somehow in the conversation he says, can you find my phone? Like if you find my phone, give it to me or whatever. So he's definitely like, asking her about the phone and all these kind of things. And she said he also tried to start small talk with her a few times. And he was like, she said at one point he said that the handcuffs are not what he's used to. And I was like, that mean that's yeah. I was like, I hope he's not trying to fucking come on to her. She's a pretty lady, but like weird. I don't know if that's what he was doing. That's what she, I mean, she just said, he said that he says in the video because she's asking him, what time do you normally drop your son off? He says, he says, there's no set time, really. This morning, I was going to drop him off around 9. Um, and he said, I swore I, I dropped him off. I, I really thought I did. He asks why he's being detained. Officer Piper does not respond. He starts turning his head to look out the rear windshield, presumably at the scene, kind of seeing what's going on, I guess. And after several minutes of sitting calmly, he starts to sob. And he says, God, what have I done? What have I done? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What have I done? My boy, my boy. Oh, my God. And the crying kind of appears to come in waves. It's like he alternates between crying, yelling, shaking. He leans his head against the headrest behind him, not like banging his head, but like, you know, kind of throwing it back a little bit. Um, Once they're finally en route to the police station, he starts asking Officer Piper 
how long she's been in law enforcement. Almost like, again, she said he was like making small talk. And he said, and she says, I, I can't talk to you. I'm not going to have a conversation with you. Um, then again, he mentions that the handcuffs are different than the ones he was used to when he worked in law enforcement in Tuscaloosa. So I'm really hoping that's what he meant the first time and not trying to make a sexual, but I mean, it literally sounded like he tried to have sex with everything around him. So I don't know. But on cross-examination, Kilgore asked Piper whether she felt that Harris was screaming enough. And she said that when she was a 911 dispatcher, she was used to frantic callers and people sounding very distressed. Kilgore got her to admit that she didn't know anything about Ross Harris at the time she interacted with him on the scene, including what he did for a living, how much emotion he typically showed, or how he typically dealt with trauma. So basically she's conceding I didn't feel like it looked normal, but I don't know his baseline, so I guess I really can't say what's normal for him and what's not. So that's kind of where they left it with her. I mean, I really felt like when you watch that video, and you're going to see this with a lot of evidence that the prosecution presents, once when you hear them say something, you're like, well, that sounds really bad. And then you watch the video, and you're like, well, that's a little bit twisted. That's not really 100% exactly how it happened. It's like they kind of remove context and... So they're shaping the narrative. It seems that way. Yeah. So, and I honestly think that a lot of the stuff that they brought out as evidence, I mean, really just proved that. Like, it it showed that. It made it obvious. And yet they did it anyway. So, I don't know. But, um... That's part one, guys. It's part one. Okay, guys. In the books. All right. In the books, boys. Gotta get Just those W's. Stamp it. Yeah. Yep. So, obviously, part two will be coming up. Um, it'll release next week for everybody. And for our special Patreon peeps, you'll get it immediately. Mm-hmm. Go have it now if you like. <laughs> So uh, next one, we'll finish the trial out and get to the verdict and the sentencing and all those things. Thank you for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye. What's up? Oh, I like it. Thanks. Should we do... What's up? <laughs> What's up? <laughs> you have to, like, back up. What's up? <laughs> it's too much. Too much. Get in on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Killer Queens Podcast and join our Facebook discussion group at Killer Queens Podcast where we discuss cases covered on the show and all things 90s. If you want to submit a case to be covered on the show, visit www.killerqueenspodcast.com slash case submission and complete the form. If we cover the case, we'll even give you a shout out on the show. Killer Queens is researched, mixed, and mastered by our own damn selves. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. And our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Lila's! <laughs>